Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. In the first segment on this episode, we'll take a look at the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a landmark bipartisan bill signed into law a little over 25 years ago. Since then, though, the bill has lost many of its supporters and is now under attack. So why was this bill signed into law in the first place? And do we need it today? Daniel Mark, who's a professor of political science at Villanova University, helps us answer these questions. After that, we address the rumors that a recession is coming in the near future. Even though unemployment rates are low, America's trade war with China and mounting debt are causing many to believe that we're quickly headed toward economic disaster. Jared Pinson, a professor of economics at the King's College, clears the confusion and proves why there's no reason to panic. To read more about the topics in today's show, you can find a good list of articles and resources that I've linked in the show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Mark, a past chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and a professor of political science at Villanova University. In this segment, he'll be breaking down the significance of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Daniel, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm going to take us back to the beginning of when this bill was passed. On November 16, 1993, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, more commonly known as RIFRA, passed the U.S. House unanimously and nearly unanimously in the Senate. When Bill Clinton signed it into law, he said, quote, what RIFRA basically says is that the government should be held to a very high level of proof before it interferes with someone's free exercise of religion. We believe strongly that we can never be too vigilant in this work. Daniel, why did we pass RIFRA? We already had religious liberty protected by the First Amendment. So why did Congress feel like they should pass a law now? That's a really good question. Religious liberty is protected by the First Amendment. It's actually the very beginning of the First Amendment. But the thing is that it's all in the interpretation. And the Supreme Court over our history, and especially in the second half of the 20th century, has spent a lot of time interpreting the First Amendment, which is to say, telling our lawmakers and uh, our executives, telling them what the First Amendment actually means when it comes to practical policy, what they can and can't do. For most of our history, I guess I would say, it was understood to offer a pretty robust protection of religious liberty. Now, not everything is protected. Uh, If people want to kill in the name of their religion or something like that, that's not allowed. There was a very important event in 1990, just a few years before this bill was passed, where the Supreme Court issued a decision that seemed, to many observers, really changed the game in terms of lowering the bar for government infringement of religious liberty. That was the Smith decision. Uh, The details of the case are interesting, but maybe for another time. And in any case, like you said, I mean, the the history of RIFRA is so fascinating that the Smith decision was so unpopular— that it created a almost, I won't say unprecedented, but these days we would think of it as an unthinkable coalition of right and left in order to 
change the law so that it would go back to the standard that most people thought Smith had thrown out the window. Um, and that's why it's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The idea is that religious freedom was very well protected by the First Amendment until the Smith decision came along and threw that out the window. Now, we can also debate the Smith decision. Was it right? Was it wrong? But in any case, as you mentioned, a nearly unanimous Congress, along with the President of the United States, decided that the bar needed to be raised again, that we needed to bring in a new standard, and we can talk about what that standard is if you want, or, or bring back the old standard, I suppose, bring in a new standard post-Smith that would ensure that the burden of proof, as you said, the burden of proof on the government would be very high before the government could infringe on someone's religious liberty through a law. Now, just to clarify context here, we won't get too far into the legal jargon here, but can you explain for us what was that Smith decision? Right. And so the Smith decision said that as long as the government passes a neutral law of general applicability— then the government can burden, infringe on someone's religious liberty. What does that mean in plain English? It means as long as the government isn't targeting a religion, it isn't targeting a religious practice, it isn't discriminating against religious people, then the government is okay in passing a law that incidentally burdens someone's religious exercise. Now, this, in a way, is a perfectly logical thing, because the alternative that people were worried about, including the author of that decision in the Supreme Court, where the, uh, the alternative people are worried about is if you allow people to make exceptions for themselves, more or less, on the basis of religious claims, then where does it end? In other words, anybody can come into the court any day and say, hey, this is the law, and this is my religion, and since my religion um, trumps the law, then I should be exempt from this law and that law. Maybe I belong to the church of not paying taxes, right? Wouldn't that be nice? So now I don't have to pay my taxes because it violates my religion. And then the court would say, back uh, under the Smith decision, well, look, the law that says you have to pay taxes doesn't target you. It's not discriminating against your religion on purpose. It just happens to burden you incidentally. But we can't exempt you from that, because if we do, we'll exempt everyone and everyone from you know, anything that they want to be exempt from under their religion. And so it's not that Smith was, was crazy or, or extreme in any way. It actually, as I said, a pretty commonsensical basis. Um, at the same time, this massive coalition of right and left, a nearly unanimous Congress, felt that our First Amendment correctly understood protected religion at an even higher level than that, that it said, in fact, if the government is burdening your religion— through a neutral law of general applicability, meaning they're not targeting you on purpose, but if they're burdening your religion anyway, then unless the government has an extremely good reason for doing so, and unless the government is burdening your religion as little as necessary in order to fulfill the purposes of that extremely good reason, um, then the government cannot infringe on your religious liberty. It says it puts a very, very high bar up that the government has to pass before it can burden your religion, even when the law isn't targeting you or isn't discriminating against you on the basis of your religion on purpose. So government is basically putting um, safeguards around itself so that it won't infringe upon anyone's liberty. That's what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is exactly meant to do, which is to say, in the eyes of those who passed it, it was meant to reinforce the original safeguards put in in the Bill of Rights in the First Amendment. 
So does RIFRA give preferential treatment to Christians at all? Because a lot of people fear that conservative Christians would use RIFRA to discriminate. Uh, no, not at all. Um, RIFRA is something that protects all uh, religious freedom equally. It is not particular to Christians in any way. There's certainly nothing in the bill and nothing in any of the interpretations uh, it's received that would suggest that. When I served, as you kindly mentioned, on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which is a U.S. federal agency, um, we were committed, uh, like all aspects of the of the government, uh, federal and otherwise, uh, to protecting all religious believers. Um, and that's, you know, as enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and, and so on. Um, what's interesting and what's, what's particularly wrong-headed about the criticism you, you raise in the name of others um, is that RIFRA does a better job of ensuring that minority faiths would be protected than, let's say, the, the the more majoritarian inclined Smith decision. What do I mean by that? I mean that um, when we don't have those kinds of protections in the law, um, when we just leave it up to majorities to decide, while well, majorities are going to be more likely uh, to recognize and protect beliefs and practices that are familiar to them, even if they're not specifically their own. Um, and so, you know, some, uh, some non-traditional faith, maybe something that hasn't, a, a religion that hasn't been long in our particular society, is less likely to have the sympathy of the majority of a voting legislature. Though in America, I will say legislatures have by and large done a good job of protecting religious liberty, and whether courts or legislatures do it better is yet a separate debate. Um, but what RIFRA is going to tell us is that um, is that these are the kinds of things that are not subject to majority decisions. I mean, RIFRA, of course, is a, is a piece of legislation, but insofar as RIFRA refers back to the First Amendment and is attempting to enforce a particular interpretation of the First Amendment, it's saying that our Constitution is telling us that all religions, minority, majority, everything, uh, is going to be protected, and that a legislature with just 51% can't come in and say, we're going to discriminate against a particular religion because it's unfamiliar, it's unpopular, and so on. So, Rifra, it just, it really creates a level playing field, is what you're saying. Right. RIFRA's aim is definitely to protect all religious beliefs without discriminating between ones that are popular and unpopular, and so on and so forth. Right? The, the standard set forth in RIFRA that the government, in order to burden someone's religion, must have an extremely high, an extremely good reason and that the government must be burdening religion as little as possible and furthering its ends, that is something that applies to every religious claimant who comes before the court, um, regardless of whether it's, as I say, a popular uh, or widespread faith or something that's very small, very new, very unfamiliar. In seeking to protect minority groups, especially the LGBT community, there are several bills that have been introduced recently, the Do No Harm Act and the Equality Act. But they basically go around RIFRA or try to dismantle it by saying that it, RIFRA wouldn't apply to them. What are these bills trying to remedy? The idea here, uh, you asked about, you know, what's kind of the, uh, what's the underlying uh, purpose? Uh, well, the idea is that within uh, people who advocate for uh, gay rights and so forth, uh, there is the sense that religious freedom uh, is being used improperly as a protection for discrimination, improper discrimination against people who are same-sex attracted or identify as uh, transgender, so on. Now, 
when people make these claims, so for example, you have the famous case in the United States of the baker uh, in Colorado who couldn't make a custom cake for a same-sex wedding and so on. Um, in those cases, uh, the, the rights of the believer to not participate in something like this, not express a message, not help celebrate, and so on, should be protected under the First Amendment. And that's because that is a legitimate uh, position to hold, whether from a religious or a secular position, right, to make a legitimate moral judgment um, that that kind of conduct is not something that one can participate in or help celebrate, uh, and so on. And that's why the law under RIFRA, or even without RIFRA, you know, under the First Amendment, can and should protect those um, uh, those people, bakers, photographers, you know, people, anybody providing wedding services or anything else related, protect those people from any claims under anti-discrimination statutes. Um, so a law might say you can't discriminate against someone on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, um, and then you would come back and say, well, you're claiming that I'm discriminating against you, but I have a religious freedom uh, exemption. Uh, and so far, there have been some cases, there have been many cases in which these religious claimants have lost, uh, but there have been some cases, such as Jack the Baker, um, where they have won. In the end, the Supreme Court decided, Supreme Court decided that on uh, more freedom of speech grounds than religious freedom grounds, but that's to one side for now. The point of the bills that you're mentioning, the point of the bills that you're mentioning is to say that you cannot bring a religious freedom claim if you are being sued under these anti-discrimination laws. Um, that if you don't want to provide services, let's say again for a same-sex wedding, you, whether you're a photographer, or a baker, or a florist, whatever it is, um, you will in fact be found guilty of discriminating uh, if you won't do that for religious reasons. And I think that's very bad and very dangerous. I think people's religious freedom, even if we're going to have these anti-discrimination laws, the so-called SOGI laws on sexual orientation and gender identity, that's what it stands for. Even if you're going to have these exemptions, um, these anti-discrimination laws, even if you're going to have these anti-discrimination laws, people should still be allowed religious liberty exemptions. And these laws uh, that you mentioned want to undo those religious liberty exemptions. Are there versions of these bills that would not trample on RIFRA? There have been attempts at certain compromises, uh, such as Fairness for All uh, in Utah and so on, that want to say that we'll do both at the same time. We'll pass anti-discrimination laws to protect people from being discriminated on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity, and at the same time, we'll pass religious liberty protections to say that anyone who has a religious claim uh, can be exempt on the basis of those religious beliefs. Um, now, things like the Equality Act want to undo those compromises as well. I'm skeptical of those compromises because I don't know how long they'll last in the face of you know, court decisions and so on. But in any case, once we go to the Equality Act and things like that, um, those will explicitly undo those compromises and say, you simply cannot claim a religious liberty exemption from an anti-discrimination law. Um, and, uh, and as I said, that would be, uh, that would be very bad. And is one of the main concerns here, you would say, is that the court would be functioning on a very fluid definition of discrimination? 
Well, certainly. I mean, once you open the door, who knows what we're going to get? Um, I mean, the court is now being asked to, you know, redefine sex in, in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to include uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and it would be a, I mean, so certainly we would have uh, a moving target. Um, but but the main thing, uh, I mean, the, the main concern, the primary concern isn't so much um, that who knows what you're going to get out of the court once you do this. It's actually much more immediate. It's that you would be explicitly removing people's legitimate constitutional religious freedom protections by passing these bills. Um, right? It would say no one could come into court and say, I know you've passed an anti-discrimination law, but it's not something I can comply with because I'm a religious believer and this violates my religious beliefs. Now, again, assuming that the religious believer isn't claiming uh, to be able to do anything um, that is in fact, immoral, um, then those religious liberty beliefs, uh, those religious beliefs, those religious liberty claims should be respected, um, and they would be denied under the bills uh, that you asked me about. You gave a talk here at Acton University this past year in which you said that religious liberty is our first and most important freedom. How so? Well, uh, as Americans, it's it's literally our first freedom um, because it's the very first thing in our Bill of Rights. Now, of course, all our freedoms don't come from the Bill of Rights, but we look at it that way in a very symbolic way um, that's important. Um, but I think it's more fundamental than that on a philosophical level. I think uh, religious freedom teaches us that there is something above and beyond the control of the state. Uh, religion gives us the idea that we don't belong wholly to our society, wholly to our government. We belong ultimately to God. And because we belong ultimately to God, there are certain boundaries to what the state can do, certain boundaries to what the state can do to us. That's a very fundamental idea, and I think it's a foundational idea because it then becomes the foundation of all the other freedoms that we know as human rights. Once we establish and start with, in principle, the idea that we don't belong completely to the state and there are boundaries to what the state can do and do to us, um, then we open the door to all of the freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of association, everything we hold dear as Americans, everything we hold dear as freedom-loving people around the world um, can be premised in a way on the idea of religion and religious freedom because of the way in which religious freedom is the first freedom, uh, because religious freedom is uh, the protector of our right to live our lives in service, first of all and most of all, to God, and secondarily to our state and to our society. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. In the face of threats to religious liberty, a growing cry for socialism from young Americans, and a ballooning national debt, the Acton Institute offers a fresh and unique perspective by connecting economic freedom, free enterprise, and entrepreneurship with a vibrant Judeo-Christian world culture. Acton believes that liberty is best preserved when man's God-given dignity is recognized and respected. Come celebrate Acton's 29th year with us in Grand Rapids on October 15th for a dinner and a special keynote address from Andrew Clavin, the award-winning author, screenwriter, and host of The Andrew Clavin Show at The Daily Wire. Save your seat today at acton.org events.
ripped from the headlines. Quote, Wall Street and the stock market won't save us from Trump's trade war. Quote, everyone is losing their mind about the possibility of a recession, but in reality, the U.S. economy is fine. Quote, this piece of the U.S. real estate market is flashing a warning sign. What kind of sense do we make of this? Welcome to Act Online. I'm your host, John Caritas. Today is Friday, August 30th, and we're going to address these recession rumors, recession jitters. And our guest today is Jared Pinson. He's an associate professor of economics at the King's College in New York City. Welcome to Act Online, Jared. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. If I could ask you, let's start by getting a definition of what is a recession. So commonly, a recession is a downturn of real GDP for six months. That's the common notion of a recession. That's, that's not really the technical definition economists use. It's a little more complex. Um, a recession looks at a downturn in economic activity over a broad sector of the economy when unemployment starts to rise, employment starts to fall. Um, but a good rule of thumb is when economic activity is falling for, again, about six months or so. So on the way to work today, I'm listening to CNBC in the car, and they're talking about trade, they're talking about tariffs, they're talking about deficit, they're talking about debt. What sort of indicators do you follow? What what are your leading indicators for the economy, whether it's headed north or south? Yeah, there, there are a few that are important. Um, you want to look at real consumer spending. You want to look at uh, private investment. Um, you want to look at what's happening in the labor market, usually the employment, um, employment numbers, specifically how many people are employed, um, how the weekly jobless claims are changing. So these are some of the, the major ones. Uh, industrial production, which measures the output of manufacturing in the mining sector. So if you put all those together, you tend to get a pretty good picture of what is happening uh, in the economy broadly. So there's no one cause, obviously. We're talking about an incredibly complex phenomenon, the U.S. economy, which is very integrated into the global economy. What about trade? There's been a lot of discussion, and uh, admittedly, it's, a lot of it is politicized, a lot of discussion about President Trump's trade war dispute, however you want to describe it, with China and the tariffs, the tit-for-tat on tariffs between the U.S. and China. Is it possible to look at those tariffs in isolation as having an effect on the economy right now? Well, yes, yes and no. So sometimes recessions uh, are caused by one sort of singular cause. Uh, the recession in the early 1970s was clearly an oil shock. The recession in the early 1980s was driven by a deliberate federal policy. And then other times, there is not one clear cause of a, a recession. The last recession we had in 2007 to 2009, yeah, there's still a debate as to what the primary cause to that recession was, if there's a primary cause. Real so estate, trade, investment. Right, whether yeah, it was real right. estate. I mean, I, I come down on that one, that the Federal Reserve was not behaving appropriately. But, but that, you know, that's debatable. So with, with this particular uh, economic climate, trade 
is certainly one of the drivers if we're going to have a recession. And I'm not, I'm not predicting one, but as a possible cause. But it wouldn't be the tariffs themselves because the, the amount of trade between the U.S. and China, given the size of the U.S. economy, isn't that large. If, if trade collapsed and that was the only thing that happened, that wouldn't cause a recession. The worry and the, and the, the numbers would indicate it uh, could be a problem is if the uncertainty around what is happening causes consumers to pull back on spending and uh, businesses to cut back on investment, then that would lead to a recession. So it's really the uncertainty of the policy more than the policy itself. Um, there might be problems with restricting trade and tariffs, but in and of itself, that's not going to cause the, re- the recession. The, the U.S. economy is, is far too diversified and far too large for that to be the one singular cause. Well, you point to something very interesting, business confidence, consumer spending. Right after Trump got elected, uh, that those confidence levels soared, the stock market took up. We're still at levels much higher than it was uh, at the time of uh, the election. Now, whether or not he can take credit for all that is is uh, debatable, but there's no question that there was a different sort of sentiment out there with this administration. And so spending, hiring, investment all seem to be healthy at that point and forward. Yeah, and you can, you can see that if you look at the uh the GDP numbers, sort of the, the underlying data that make up the numbers, that business investment in particular accelerated when it became clear that Trump was had, had won the presidency. So the fourth quarter of 2016, you saw business investment accelerate. You saw it um, continue to be elevated once the uh, 2017 tax reform was done. So that was, that was a clear trend difference that you saw versus really any time after the recession. However, uh, now that the trade dispute has significantly uh, accelerated, it seems like every week somebody, either China or the U.S., is, is threatening tariffs or, or actually putting tariffs on. You see business investment pull back. In fact, this last quarter, the second quarter of 2019, business investment fell by uh, 6 Six percent, um, which is a pretty big number compared to what it had been. It had been growing, you know, four, five, six percent um, a quarter. That's the, again. That's the that's the worry is the uncertainty. And if businesses pull back, if that if that starts affecting their decision to increase employment, or if they start cutting back on employment, then you'll see consumer spending fall. And as of right now, consumer spending isn't falling. In fact, that was the, the really big bright spot of the second quarter GDP and the first quarter was that consumers are, are continuing to spend. There doesn't seem to be an indication that they're slowing their spending. And a lot of that is because the employment market is very robust. Um, the unemployment rate is low. Wages are, are rising. They've they're slowed their rise the last few months, but they have been rising faster than inflation um, for a few quarters now. And so those are good signs for the consumer, uh, but that's something to watch for. As soon as you start seeing consumer spending start to dip, you could 
you could start to, to be a little more worried. Be a little more concerned. Well, you point to employment levels, and we are what would most people would uh, look at as full employment in this country, given the the labor force participation, low unemployment, people are working and uh, doing pretty well right now, which which plugs into your comment about uh, consumer spending. Let's talk about fiscal policy. A lot of hand-wringing about budget deficits, national debt, and the federal budget deficit is predicted to top $1 trillion this year. Cumulative national debt, over $20 trillion. I mean, the numbers are really hard to comprehend. But despite all the hand-wringing, not much has changed. In fact, government spending has increased uh, and deficits have increased in the last couple of years under a GOP administration. Are, is there going to be a time when the bill is going to come due for all this, or can we just continue to finance this thing indefinitely? Well, um, given our sort of topic of, of the current economic climate, the, the deficit right now is no worry for that, for the current. But I think you hit correctly long-term uh, is the problem. And part of the reason that the deficit is continuing to climb is simply the entitlement programs are now giving out much more than they're they're taking in. So Social Security has been paying out more than it's been bringing in for for a number of years now. And as more and more people retire and as fewer and fewer workers replace them just simply of demographic changes, if you do nothing else with spending, if you don't spend anything else, you keep spending the same, that is going to the entitlement spending is going to continue to increase the deficit. So the, the big sort of, and I tell my students this, the big sort of year that we should be looking at, hopefully we do something before this, but 2028, which I tell my students isn't that far out anymore, um, that's when you start seeing like a federal disability program will run a deficit, so they'll actually be paying out more than they bring in, and then we're within, depending on the projections, four or five years from when it happens to, to Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. So the, the long-term debt picture for the United States is, is a, a lot scarier than, than even the short term, and, I, and I'm not even advocating that we should be spending a trillion dollars in deficit, but if we're going to take the deficit and the debt problem seriously. It has to be fundamental reforms to those entitlement programs because uh, roughly 2030, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid will be roughly 70% of the budget. That's before we fund anything. I always joke to my students, essentially the federal government is the AARP with an army. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that, that's what they are. Um, right. So that, that's a concern that I have, and it would be a lot better to, to start talking about that now. It's, it's kind of alarming to me as an economist that with all this election chatter on either sides of the aisle, nobody is, is talking about reforming those entitlement, um, entitlement programs because they're like, well... You know, heck, if, if, you know, pick your candidate wins in 2020, if they win re-election in 2024, they're done by 2029 when, when everything starts coming to the full light. Let me ask you a question. 
uh, in the last recession, and now we're in the longest expansion in our economy's history since the steep dive of 2008-2009, there was a lot of discussion about moral hazard, the business of too big to fail, bailing out banks, bailing out auto companies. Do we Are we still in a, in a political climate where we will reach for those solutions if they're still available for us? Tell us how you look at moral hazard and whether or not you think that we still have the, the potential to, to react the same way as we did a decade ago. Well, if, if we do fall into a recession uh, in the next few months, it, it probably wouldn't be a moral hazard issue in the sense of it would, it would be a, a bunch of confounding factors. But the response to it, I'm not as confident uh, that Dodd-Frank bill sort of cemented some of the problems that we had before the 2007-2009 recession in that it, it essentially now makes certain financial institutions too big to fail. And so um, just for hypothetical, if we had another financial crisis, we would almost be forced by law to bail out these large institutions. And that's, you know, that, that would not be politically popular. There's, there's no way that you can look at what has happened politically since those bailouts in 2008 and 2009 and, and not say on, on both sides of the aisle, but there was real frustration that large financial firms uh, seemed to be helped, whereas sort of the average person wasn't. And that, that is still a problem now. And I'm starting to see as well, you know, there was this big concern right after the last recession that we had too loose of lending standards for housing, right? So the common narrative your whole life was you save 20%, get a down payment, get a house you can afford, so forth. That was all sort of wiped away in the late 90s and into the 2000s, and you could get a mortgage for basically walking in a bank and saying, I need a mortgage. We're starting to see some of that again with FHA loans, where you can get mortgages with as little as 3% down payment. And it's almost as if, you know, we've heard this story before, and why aren't we learning from this mistake? Um, that, that's, that's problematic. And it's all in the guise of, you know, we need more people in, to be taking out mortgages and to have, have you know, single-family housing. And it's really unclear economically why that should be a national goal at all. Let me wrap up. This has been this has been really good and helpful. Let me wrap up again with politics, again, if we might. Some political commentators on the left, like Bill Mayer, are actually rooting for a recession because they say that that's the one surefire way to get Trump out of office. What's your reaction to that? I mean, I, I read um, political commentary, and I, I see that now and, and then from someone. I mean, none of the Democratic candidates have outright said that, but certain kind of left-leaning outlets have, have you know, written opinion pieces on, on basically that exact point that Bill Maher made. Um, it's, it's troubling. Uh, no matter who is in power, the opposition party shouldn't be rooting for or, you know, recession or a war or anything like that, because they're very destructive. And if we go into recession, it's not going to hurt Bill Maher. It's not going to hurt um, sort of the average person at, you know, at, at, you know, pick your think tank, whoever it wants to be. It's going to hurt the person who was out of work for a while, finally has a job, 
um, that, that is going to lose it again. It's going to hurt uh, individuals who uh, maybe have, are, are working part-time and are starting to get some benefits. So that, that you know, it's problematic um, talk when people say that. And, you know, I hope nobody actually believes that, that it's just sort of a throwaway line that people can tweet about when it gets news. Um, but, but certainly from a humanitarian perspective, you don't, you don't root for those things. Jared, thank you for joining us today. That's been very helpful. It's a really complicated subject to sort through, and I think you've helped our listeners get a grip on it. I'm, I'm glad to have uh, offered some thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Our podcast team here at the Acton Institute is working hard each and every week to bring you another great episode of Acton Line, but we couldn't do it without you. Join our efforts to bridge good intentions with sound economics by sharing this podcast with a friend, leaving us a rating or review, or even emailing me with any feedback you have at actinline at acton.org. Lastly, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes and subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on the usual directories like iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, but we are also now on YouTube and Spotify.